From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Oppenheimer domination, a lack of Barbie love, and a French film nominated for Best Picture that France didn't even submit for Oscar. The Hollywood Reporter's Executive Awards Editor, Scott Feinberg, helps us make sense of this year's Academy Awards nominees. Aside from Best Picture, all the major categories are chosen just by the people who work in that specific area. So when people say, oh, the Academy snubbed Greta Gerwig, well, if you feel it was a snub, it's a snub by the director's branch, which is only 6% of the entire Academy. An in-depth look at the 2024 Oscars, but first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So where do we begin? We begin with Paramount. As we have discussed in the banter previously, it appears that Sherry Redstone, who controls Paramount through her national amusements, NAI, is facing the reality that she needs to sell. And as has been reported, David Ellison of Skydance, which has been, he's been in a partnership with uh, other studios, notably Paramount, doing things like the Mission Impossible movie, billionaire son of billionaire Larry Ellison. (laughs) He has been um, reported to have kicked the tires. As you know, Matt, I'm skeptical that that is a real thing. And a lot of times it's fun to look under the hood, but I don't think that that's going to turn out to be a thing. And now Byron Allen has come onto the field of play with an offer valued at $30 billion. And what's funny to me, I mean, Byron Allen kicks a lot of tires too and feels sometimes that he's dismissed too easily, but he does have something of a media empire and produces shows and made an offer for BET. He's the owner of the Weather Channel. So he's been around building up that empire. Weirdly, I thought he wants the stuff that nobody else wants, it seems. He wants their TV networks, the cable networks. That's the problem that everybody else doesn't want. Byron Allen does want it, apparently. Yeah, it's a fascinating situation here because I I think the Ellison offer or the Ellison kicking the tires thing is a little bit more real than you do. But he has a very specific goal, and that's merging Skydance with the Paramount studio. Byron Allen wants none of that. He has said that he's going to sell the lot in Hollywood. He's going to sell the studio library and the IP associated with it. He wants to quadruple down on (laughs) CBS and Nickelodeon and and MTV MTV and all of these garbage linear TV assets that nobody else wants to touch. And it's fascinating because he's looking at his own linear TV empire. And he's saying, listen, I'm actually making some money on this. Not forever, but I am making money on it. And might as well get all these assets on the cheap and then I can sell off the other stuff and make me whole. Yeah, I mean, he could sell those in a minute. Netflix has made it very clear they would buy that lot, they would buy that library. So I don't think he'd have trouble turning those around. As far as the Ellison thing, I think the question is, and then what? You know, he has a production company. He has relationships. You know, he does animation through Apple and has these movie deals. But then what? You know, he buys control of it. And what's the plan? Maybe to sell the linear channels to Byron Allen and the rest. Yeah, I know. That's the funny thing. He could actually do a deal with Byron Allen. I know. I think that his private equity partners, KKR and Redbird Capital, they would help him dispose of the assets that he does not want. And he would essentially crown himself king of Melrose Avenue and work on the lot with his merged company and make shows and movies as a so-called arms dealer for decades after this. That at least I think 
would be the plan. But the thing about the Byron Allen offer that we don't know is who is backing him. He's very quick to jump into these situations and announce himself as a potential buyer. He did it when Bob Iger put the Disney linear TV assets up for sale. He did it with BET. He's done it several times in the past. And we never really know what the money is behind him. And he still has not revealed that here. He says he has strategic partners. He says he has banks that are falling over themselves to give him money. He's never really been clear about what that is. And I think that is one of the reasons why he is not taken as seriously as some other offers. Well, I'm just going to quickly read a little Eddie Murphy comment that he made in The Hollywood Reporter in 2020 in a profile of Byron Allen. He's talking about how he plays Byron Allen in chess. And Eddie Murphy says... I am a much better chess player than Byron, like nobody beats me. If I had played Byron on the clock, I would have killed Byron. But we didn't play on the clock. We just played, and that's Byron's game. He's super patient. He takes a long time between every move. He does it until you get frustrated, and then you do something stupid. So uh, maybe that's the thought. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because the key element here, as the investor Mario Gabelli has said, is the FCC. And the FCC must grant the transfer of the license for CBS to whoever buys this company. And Byron Allen says that he is a much more attractive home for that license than some faceless private equity firms whose motives are not entirely clear, even if they have a front in a David Ellison or someone yeah, else. Probably so probably bleed it dry and then let it yeah, die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is private equity just going to treat television like the newspaper business and bleed it dry? Or is it going to have a nice steward in someone like Byron Allen, who wants to be in this business, frankly, would be the first black owner of a FCC license for one of the broadcast networks, which would be significant. And, you know, we don't know what the motives are for the others. Ellison, I think, would counter that he also has good motives in this. You know, he's just as upstanding as anyone else. He's got his father who has $150 billion behind him. But Ellison also has been pretty clear about how he doesn't ultimately want that asset. He would then flip it somewhere else, and that would become potentially an issue. Well, we'll see how that particular game of chess turns out. Let me turn to the WWE. <laughs> your, your favorite, I know. My favorite, yeah. Uh, so as we, I think, previously discussed, Netflix made a deal, a significant deal, a five-year deal to carry WWE. And, the, you know, in the Ted Sarandos way, this is not breaking his promise not to get into sports because it is sports entertainment. So that's different. But they did this, I will say. They did this deal. This is uh, Ari Emanuel's endeavor. Kind of in a nick of, I mean, Ari Emanuel, you know, who is overseeing both endeavor and the TKO, which is, I call it Fight Club, UFC, WWE. They did it in the nick of time because while we knew that Vince McMahon was a pig, the head of WWE, the longtime head, and, and there had been plenty of reports about paying people off for sexual misconduct, this particular lawsuit that just got fired was full of such disgusting allegations and specifically gross things that I would not say to, on the radio that... It's possible the whole thing with Netflix would have gotten screwed up if it had broken earlier and Netflix might have said, whoa, 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 what's going on here? As it is, you know, they quickly got rid of Vince McMahon in that title, but that is a break from the point of view, I think, of, uh, of the Netflix deal that was being made by TKO and, you know, Endeavor. 
Yeah, Ari Emanuel dodged a bullet there. I mean, even a week earlier with these allegations and it could have sullied the Netflix deal. As it is, I think with Vince being pushed out, sponsors are now back on board. I understand that there have been calls between Netflix and Endeavor to say, okay, we're, we're fine with this. We're going to move forward. There's no problem. You know, Vince was a relic of the past, even though he muscled his way back onto the board and back into a leadership position. The truth of the matter is that in WWE world, Vince has not really been a player in a while. Um, he's not on camera anymore. He's not, you know, the head creative person. That's Triple H. So it makes sense that Endeavor would push him out. And I do think that this will be back to business as usual once this all blows over. So while the lawsuit will continue, we understand that at least there was no heads up beforehand about this lawsuit, which would have given them an opportunity to just settle and be done. But I will say, even if they have tidied up the WWE situation, this world, especially UFC, it's full of people who have allegations and who lead a certain kind of life. And I feel like you're just sitting there waiting for the next thing to happen where there's, you know, outcry. Well, think about what Endeavor has dealt with with both UFC and WWE. I mean, there's a video of Dana White hitting his wife at a bar in Mexico. And, like, they have gotten past that. It doesn't seem to hurt the UFC sales. And I know that their media rights are still very much in demand. The Vince stuff, you know, this wasn't known. The stuff that came out in the, the allegations in this lawsuit weren't known. But Vince was pretty much banished for previous allegations, including some payoffs to women. And that didn't prevent WWE from this massive sale to Endeavor and a rights deal with Netflix. So it's kind of odd. You know, this they seem to operate outside some of the norms for traditional entertainment now. I think you're right. They're held to a different standard, but there still would be some standard, and we'll see how that goes going forward. I mean, this is really popular stuff, so we, <laughs> the question would be what kind of a scandal could possibly ding it, But and right now, I don't know. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Coming up after the break, The Hollywood Reporter's Executive Awards editor, Scott Feinberg, joins me to break down this year's Academy Award nominees. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. I'm talking with Scott Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's executive editor of awards coverage, for his take on this year's Oscar season. 
let's just start with something kind of basic, I think, which is the new rules that the Academy announced in 2020. And I think this is the first group held to that rule. This is a representation and inclusion standard for Oscar eligibility. I I hope the Republican Party is not about to descend. <laughs> Probably. Well, so, yeah, no, it's uh, there's no pleasing everyone, as the Academy often realizes. And in this case, it was an outgrowth of these ongoing efforts since the Oscars So White situation of about a decade ago. There were efforts to double the number of women and people of color in the Academy by 2020. That happened. And then they did not want to suggest that that had solved all problems. And so the next phase of this was to come up with several criteria, a few of which would have to be met for a film to be eligible for Best Picture. Yeah, let me just run through them really quick. One is on-screen representation themes and narratives. Another is creative leadership and project team. Uh, Another is industry access and opportunities, I assume for underrepresented groups. Another one, again, is audience development. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Yeah, the initial response of people, a lot of people, was for the Academy to be in any way limiting the eligibility of films for Best Picture, you know, making it about anything other than the assessment of the film itself was very upsetting to a lot of people. They felt that that was a a step too far. But when you actually look at these criteria and the fact that only like two of them have to be met to be eligible for Best Picture and that even if they aren't met, you're, you're still eligible for other awards that you would have been. You know, the key thing was really that it's almost impossible not to meet at least two of the criteria. It's a very low bar. And I think it's more about the Academy trying to say that these are things that should be important to the industry, but at the same time, recognizing that they're not really the uh, police of the industry. They don't have the ability to enforce much beyond this. So in the end, they ended up not pleasing anyone because it's not very not There's, too effective, not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and at the same time, it's a, a soundbite that just infuriates a lot of people who don't dig into the small print. Yeah, I mean, I know what on-screen representation themes and narratives would be, but do we know what audience development means? <laughs> you know, I'd have to go back and look at the small print again, but essentially, you know, there are things like, it's not only like the cast or the plot that has to feature underrepresented people, but it can also be your publicity and marketing team, you know, things like that. So again, you would really have to try hard not to meet this criteria. And in fact, they have looked at the past decade or so, and it would not have affected any of the major (laughs) contenders that were nominated for Best Picture. Well, then we have spent quite enough time on that, I suppose. (laughs) So let's look at the big picture. I mean, it does feel already like Oppenheimer is on the road to victory in the Best Picture category. I know there's a complicated voting system that the Academy has, which no matter how many times somebody tries to explain it to me, I will (laughs) never understand. So let's just not even try. But does that just kind of take some of the air out of the balloon? Well, you know, we've had films that looked like unbeatable frontrunners in recent years, like La La Land, and we know how that panned out. <laughs> so but close the, and yet, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They they were the, briefly the Best Picture winner, but uh, <laughs> in the case of Oppenheimer, it has 13 nominations, which 
you know, the film with the most nominations doesn't always win at all for Best Picture, especially since the category expanded beyond five. And with that, the weighted preferential voting system went into effect. There's only been three films, though, ever that have had more than the number of nominations that Oppenheimer has. One of them is La La Land. The others are all about even Titanic. They all had 14 versus the 13 that Oppenheimer had. So what we know is there's a lot of support across the Academy for Oppenheimer. But we also know from the La La Land example that that does not mean you are a slam dunk with the preferential ballot. And so at this point, there's no clear alternative in the way that with La La Land, even though most people thought that was going to win, Moonlight was- It was was there. Yeah. You felt its presence. Yeah. Yeah. This year, you know, Barbie was a little undercut by the nominations, which I'm sure we'll discuss. And then there are others that all have support, you know, American fiction and poor things and whatever, but there's no one clear alternative. So I think that Oppenheimer is the pretty definitive front runner at this point. Yeah. And what an amazing run it had. I mean, I don't know anybody who thought it would get to that kind of huge box office, but the industry would love to repeat the Barbenheimer phenomenon. That's for sure. Let me jump to some controversies because, you know, those are always the fun ones. The, <laughs> the big one this year, of course, is the so-called Barbie snub in the movies nominated, but Greta Gerwig isn't. And I don't know. Do you take a position on that as an analyst or, or explain Yeah, I'm it? happy to. Uh, essentially, what happened is, as you say, you know, Barbie got eight nominations, best picture among them. So it's not like people disliked or hated Barbie, which is sort of the suggestion of some. But what did happen is that it missed key nominations, Best Director Greta Miss, Greta Gerwig, and Best Actress Margot Robbie Miss, which these are like the two faces of the film, essentially. And so there was a big backlash to that. And, you know, I will say that I and most other pundits, we expected them to get nominated. But at the same time, if you look at who was nominated instead of them, it's not like there's any outrageous, like inexplicable person who would be unworthy who was chosen instead of them. And in fact, for some who kind of initially thought maybe this might be evidence of sexism, in fact, one of the people who is nominated for Best Director is a different woman, Justine Trier, for Anatomy of a Fall. That doesn't mean there, you know, like there can only be one woman a year. In fact, I hope not. uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But I don't think that the root of the issue is actually necessarily sexism as much as, well, first, what we should establish is that aside from Best Picture, All the major categories are chosen just by the people who work in that specific area. So directors only are the ones who chose the directing nominees. So when people say, oh, the Academy snubbed Greta Gerwig, well, if you feel it was a snub, it's a snub by the director's branch. Which which I assume is heavily male directors. Heavily male, but also only 6% of the entire Academy. And so it's not like it's necessarily reflective of anything. And And a recent example of that is that The year of Argo Argo, winning Best Picture, Mm -hmm. Ben Affleck was not nominated for Best Director. And in fact, that snub that year may well have propelled Argo to uh, Best Picture. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's never as cut and dry as it initially appears to be. And then with Actress, you know, Margot Robbie was missing. But what I think, you know, particularly with the directing category, but perhaps elsewhere as well, I think the real likeliest issue is that Many Academy members have this sort of deeply ingrained idea of what an Oscar movie, quote unquote, is. And that is 
not often comedic or <laughs> fun. <laughs> uh, fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that you have uh, biopics and period pieces and costume dramas, and right. there are exceptions. And this this is certainly in the last few years, the notions of what an Oscar movie is appear to have expanded because we had everything everywhere all at once win Best Picture. You know, you had Parasite, a non-English language movie. But in certain branches, as, as I think the Gerwig omission indicates, some, you know, are going to be slower to change than others. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason there's such a negative reaction on the Greta Gerwig of it all is that um, it's, A, sort of what the movie was about. <laughs> it was marginalization <laughs> of women. And yeah. B, you know, she took this plastic doll that really that should have been a completely pointless exercise in failure <laughs> with this movie. And she made it a huge hit that really resonated with a lot of people. So it did feel bad to a lot of people. And Ryan Gosling, of course, spoke up and said he was nominated. And, <laughs> and, and he was, yeah. yeah. And I can tell you the employees of the Academy are happiest about is that America Ferreira was also nominated for Best Sporting Actress because otherwise the only person nominated for Barbie in, in an acting yes. category mm-hmm. would have been Ken. Which <laughs> <laughs> says, I mean, I don't even be sure the America Ferreira of it all saves that, but we're happy right. for her. Um, right. <laughs> you mentioned Justine Trier, who had uh, Anatomy of a Fall, which is nominated for Best Picture. And it is not the French submission for Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I this is one of those oddities of the Academy that it is up to each country and a selection committee from that country to pick their own representative in the Oscar international feature category. And France has had a hard time in the last few years kind of getting this right. There's sort of been a, a can film festival element that has been part of the issue, which is, you know, for the last several years, the head of the Cannes Film Festival, Thierry Frimaud, was part of the selection committee and often advocated for including the film that, you know, if a French film did well at Cannes, such as the movie Titan, which won the Palme d'Or a few years ago, he'd push that to represent France at the Oscars, which was kind of reflected well on Cannes. And uh, except for the fact that those movies were often a little too weird for the Academy, and in that case, did not get even nominated. So this year, He's been removed from the committee and they decided to go for the movie that didn't win Can, which was Anatomy of a Fall, won the Palm. Instead, they went for another very good movie, The Taste of Things, with Juliette Binoche. But that was shortlisted, meaning among the final 15 for the nomination for international feature, but was not nominated as one of the final five. And meanwhile, Anatomy of a Fall, which they could have submitted is nominated for picture, director, lead actress, uh, you know, original screenplay, so many different things. And uh, it, it certainly, you know, I, I have a feeling they now regret not going for it with the international feature submission as well. Yeah, it seemed like they would have a lock on that. I think Justine Trier had some words to say about that. She, uh, she said, to not risk winning the international feature Oscar, France chose not to submit Anatomy of a Fall, but one of the most boring slash annoying official selections at Cannes, too much honor to give to a female director, perhaps? What do you think? You know, she's certainly uh, entitled to her opinion. I don't think The Taste of Things was a bad movie at all. In fact, uh, a lot of people really liked it. What it really comes down to is how strategic these countries want to be in making their selections. Sometimes they submit 
what they love. And sometimes they submit what they think the Academy will love, even if it's not what they love. And look, the fact that The Taste of Things was one of the final 15 out of more than 90 that were submitted from around the world means it wasn't a out of the question that it could have been nominated. It just, you know, there's stiff competition and it wasn't among the final five. I think in hindsight, they absolutely would have had a better shot with Anatomy of a Fall. But Anatomy of a Fall is going to do fine, I think, elsewhere, you know, or at least the fact that it's it's in the running elsewhere. So it's a complicated one. Yeah. Another one that often invites controversy is documentaries. And I think both you and I were surprised that American Symphony didn't get nominated. We, we actually had a show with John Baptiste, and then we did yeah. one with Matthew Heineman because we thought it was so interesting how it was made and how it changed from a movie about, you know, creating a symphony to this very intense story of when uh, John Baptiste's wife leukemia returned. I think you had rated it as a very likely nominee and probable winner. And (laughs) what happens? Well, so basically the documentary branch of the Academy is in some ways the most screwed up of them all because this is happening year after year after year where if a movie is popular, if it's widely seen like Matthew Heineman's American Symphony was, it's out on Netflix, very popular. Uh, Same for still a Michael J. Fox movie, the Davis Guggenheim film on Apple. These are the movies that have the highest profile. And yet year after year, the documentary branch, this group of 680 people out of 10,000 in the Academy, they're killing it before it gets the chance to go to the full Academy where it would do well, because that would, again, it would be the most populous, widely appealing of the nominees. And everyone would vote on that. Exactly. And so this happened with Won't You Be My Neighbor, with Jane, with Life Itself, with Apollo 11, with Three Identical Strangers, on and on and on. And it raises some questions. Are they, you know, a lot of the Doc Branch members are not working at that scale in terms of budget, widely released, you know, high profile thing. And so is there some resentment about that? Is it more about strategically saying, hey, we don't want that film to win, so we're going to cut it off before the rest of the Academy has the chance to vote for it. There's no way to know for sure, obviously, but it's not to take anything away from the five films that were nominated, which are all very good. It is interesting that each one of them this year, and I believe this is a a first, are made from outside of the United States, not in English. So it's just a very unusual situation in that sense. But American Symphony is still going to be represented at the Oscars because John Batiste is nominated for Best Original Song. But I think that the Academy is going to look hard at whether or not they need to change the way that people vote for Best Documentary Feature, at least in the nomination process, where what I think they might end up doing is what they've done with Best Animated Feature and Best International Feature and basically invite any Academy member from any branch to opt in. If they care about documentaries, they can help to pick the nominees so that it's not just kind of a, a small ecosystem uh, or community of documentary filmmakers only making these decisions and maybe including you know grievances and whatever. Yeah, I mean, they do have to commit to watch a certain number of these films, I think, right? That That's yeah. part of the picture here, but this doesn't seem to be helping address that issue. So just, I guess, last question is, what, what else do you think is interesting about this year? You know, if you have to sum up the picture for this year, what strikes you as the interesting thing that people may not have noticed? Well, I would just say that in terms of the acting races, on the one hand, you know, indications that we've gotten so far show that we have clear front runners in these acting categories. You've got Paul Giamatti 
and Killian Murphy both won Golden Globes. Giamatti won the Critics' Choice for The Holdovers and, and Murphy for Oppenheimer. So it seems to be between those two guys for actor, uh, best actress, Emma Stone for Poor Things and Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon both won Golden Globes. And then uh, Emma Stone won the Critics' Choice Award. And then everything so far for supporting actor and supporting actress has gone to Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer and Davine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. But, and this is a big but, the Critics' Choice Awards, the Golden Globe Awards, these are voted on exclusively by journalists. And there are zero journalists uh, who are in the Academy. You know, you've, you've got Leonard Maltin, they've let it, and you know, a couple <laughs> of little exceptions. But essentially, what the constituency that we've heard from so far is completely unrelated. So there is a chance, as has happened in the past, that SAG, the first kind of of the of the Guild Awards to weigh in, may go in a different direction. And that could still, you know, really shake up the race. You could see a Bradley Cooper. You could see a an Annette Bening, um, or a Ryan Gosling uh, or even an America Ferrera start to gain momentum. So uh, I think you know, something I have to remind myself and a lot of the people who are really close to this have to remind ourselves is that, you know, momentum is largely perceived. You're now talking about a group that's got 10,000 members around the world. We had 90 people in 93 different countries voted to determine the nomination. So the fact that, you know, a handful of journalists from predominantly in the U.S. and then uh, with the Globes, uh you know, a bit beyond that, like that is not necessarily indicative of what's to come. Yes, it's weird that it would create momentum and you wonder how much it does influence the Academy, but maybe we'll find out. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Scott Feinberg is the Hollywood Reporter's Executive Awards Editor. And that's the business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream the business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. 